Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, episode 38. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to talk about Beethoven's Symphony No. 5 in C minor, Opus 67, arguably the most widely known work written by a Western classical music composer of any period. Is there a better known opening theme, or more specifically opening motive, in all of classical music? People from all over the world, whether or not they care anything at all about Western classical music on any level, recognize that four-note short-short-short-long motive probably associated with Beethoven and may even be aware of the work's iconic status on some level, one perhaps cemented by the use of that opening motive in World War II as a musical symbol for victory by the Allies due largely to its correspondence to the Morse code pattern for letter V in victory. And speaking of that famous four-note motive, we've actually seen Beethoven make use of motives very much like this before, in fact, very recently in his violin concerto in D major. But this time it's been assigned the leading role. In fact, it leads as no single motive has ever led before. And that brings us to one of the most famous aspects of the first movement, its demonstration of motivic economy. It's become almost commonplace to assert that the powerful opening motive can be found in one form or another in virtually every measure of the first movement, and quite frequently in the later movements as well. The latter point suggests another quality for which this symphony is famous, the use of thematic cyclicism and I'll get to that a little later. But in regard to motivic economy in the first movement, the degree to which the opening motive dominates it, we'll spend more time considering that point as we begin to take a closer look. But before getting into some of the more structurally based concerns, let me say a few words about the circumstances surrounding the work's genesis. It is widely assumed that the Fifth Symphony was conceived soon after the Third Symphony, with some early sketches dating to that period. And, of course, the Fifth Symphony shares with the Third some of the same heaven-storming qualities, albeit lacking the obvious quasi-military components. Whether the Fifth is also lacking the same sort of heroic qualities is quite another matter, and remains one of those discussions that is hotly contested. At any rate, the project was put aside until late 1807 and 1808 for various reasons, one of them possibly being his brief and troubled engagement with the Countess Teresa Brunswick in May 1806. The work was fondly performed, along with the Sixth Symphony, part of the Mass in C major, the Fourth Piano Concerto, and the Choral Fantasy in a very lengthy concert in Vienna in December 1808. The first movement is in 2-4 time and marked Allegro con Brio. You've already heard the opening four-note motive, but here is the entire first subject from the beginning.
Obviously, the original motive, three eighth notes followed by a half note held by a fermata, dominates to a remarkable degree. We hear it first starting on the fifth scale degree. If you think of the bottom five notes of the C minor scale, C, D, E flat, F, G, and number them one through five, the pattern begins with a five, 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 three, and then a four, 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 two. Swafford and others have pointed out that these early measures don't really establish the key of C minor and might conceivably be heard as in E flat major. Perhaps, but the sense of dramatic urgency is so instantly high just based on the dynamics and commanding rhythmic nature of the opening motive, I think that anyone at all familiar with Beethoven's earlier works would likely hear this as C minor immediately, given Beethoven's history with that key. The dynamics quiet quickly after the fortissimo beginning, but we are by no means finished with the original motive as we proceed. But almost immediately, we also begin to hear variants of that motive popping up in the first and second violins and violas. First, we hear three short notes followed by a long note, a step lower, not a third lower. And soon after that, three short notes, but with the last short note moving down a step, filling in the gap between the first two notes and the final note of the motive. And soon, we hear another variant, the inversion of the motive I just described with the pattern now ascending rather than descending. And then, as you heard, when we reach measure 19, we crescendo powerfully, climaxing on a dominant chord held again by a fermata. But before we leave the first subject behind, I want to briefly address the idea that Beethoven himself had referred to the opening motive of the first subject as fate knocking on the door. Now, Beethoven does address his relationship to fate in multiple contexts, including the Heiligenstadt Testament and in various letters. I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest that Beethoven felt, at different periods in his life, that he was, in a sense, wrestling with his fate. And yet, this particular quote, Beethoven's supposed reference to the motive as representing fate knocking, comes from Anton Schindler. We've heard from him more than once, and his proclamations of this sort are frequently deemed suspicious, primarily because it is widely suspected that Schindler was so anxious to secure the pithy Beethoven quotation that he sometimes made them up himself. Is it possible that Beethoven made some remark in Schindler's presence that led him to construct this quotation? Possibly, and I should add that some Beethoven scholars do take Schindler's quote at face value. I tend to align myself a little more with the skeptics, because I'm not sure what particular recent event or series of events would have led Beethoven to once again shake his fist so violently at fate or destiny. Another romantic disappointment? For me, this motive would be an unlikely response to that. Nevertheless, as the symphony progresses, a sense of once again grappling with fate is not out of the question, especially when we come to the final movement of the symphony. But for now, let's return to the first movement and pick things up after the first statement of the first subject. As I mentioned earlier, the fermata on the dominant chord seems to signal the end of the first subject. So, it would be reasonable to expect the beginning of a modulatory transition that will direct us to the second key and the second subject. That is what we get, 
but not without some quirks in the process. The first quirk is that after the dominant chord held with a fermata, Beethoven introduces the original motive, fortissimo, all over again, but this time suggesting F minor. Soon, we're racing, quietly, through another series of repeated four-note motives, mostly in the strings, but with the woodwinds occasionally poking their noses in, initially suggesting a diminished chord, but soon settling into another dominant chord in C minor. It's almost as if Beethoven wants to begin to move to a new key, but can't bring himself to leave behind the C minor intensity of the first subject. And that intensity increases when variants of the opening motive are repeated again and again in the strings against forzando accents in the remaining orchestra, and with the first violins reaching up higher and higher in their range. Once reaching the heights, they begin to work their way down again, only to repeat the process. Finally, near the end of that process, we begin to experience an actual key change, although it's heard as a very last-minute sort of thing. My excerpt ended with the music poised on an inverted dominant seventh chord in the new key of E-flat major. But we don't hear the second subject immediately. Instead, we hear a short linking phrase in the horns. In fact, it's often referred to as the horn call motive. Is this something new? The fact that it's played by the horns alone certainly gives it a distinctive quality but there are some familiar elements within it as well. After all, it begins with three short repeated notes like the opening motive does, and it then descends like the opening motive does to a longer note, although this time by a larger interval, a fifth. Then, still in half notes, the horn call motive moves up a step and then down another fifth. And then the second subject is introduced, overlapping with the final sustained note in the horns. We hear the new theme first in the first violins, and then the solo clarinet, and then an octave higher in the solo flute. The theme, marked dolce and play piano, and unfolding in four-measure phrases, certainly seems new and strongly contrasting with the first theme. It unfolds much more slowly than the first theme, which was, after all, composed mostly of repeated manipulations of the opening motive and it's rhythmically rather square, basically four measures of unrelieved quarter notes. I said it seems new because some commentators, Swafford among them, hear it as linked to the first subject, or at least to the horn call motive that preceded it, and was itself linked to the opening motive of the first subject. If it is linked to the horn motive, it is through a free inversion of that motive. After the four-bar phrase is repeated by the flute, it returns to the first violins, where it undergoes a transformation which seems to steer it into new keys, very briefly, initially F minor and then A flat major, but soon touching on other keys as well, as the double basses begin to move up the chromatic scale 
and the tension is increased by the use of diminished chords. You'll also notice that the opening motive of the first subject, that short, 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 long motive, is inserted into the texture again and again, providing some additional rhythmic impetus. It's heard first in the double basses, but later moves up to the violas as well. After the second subject runs its course, modulating and crescendoing along the way, it almost comes as a surprise when we find ourselves back in E-flat major for the beginning of the closing section, which is marked by a new descending scale pattern in the violins with a distinctive articulation pattern. After the closing section comes to a halt, we encounter a brief codetta, which renews the short, 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 long motive with a vengeance, although since it's now in E-flat major rather than C minor, the effect is much less intimidating. It will not come as a surprise that the development section focuses on our initial short, 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 long motive, or fate motive, if you like, which dominates from the beginning in various forms. The section begins ferociously with a blast from the horns, but soon quiets as the key is quickly locked into F minor. The strings provide most of the motivic action at first, trading off different versions of the motive, often against sustained chords in the woodwinds, as we begin to crescendo. Twenty measures into the development, we've moved to C minor, via a swelling, chromatically inflected ascending line, then quickly thereafter to G minor, where the woodwinds begin to make more active motivic contributions, including inversions of the variants heard earlier. At this point, the dynamics have dropped back down all the way to pianissimo, but it's a very busy pianissimo, with virtually every member of the orchestra developing its own version of the motive at the same time, and the tension starts to build again very quickly with rising sequential figures in the strings and woodwinds. Here's the first part of the development section. As you heard at the end of my excerpt, the domination of the fate motive cuts off rather suddenly, 
to be replaced by a quotation of the horn call motive we encountered in the exposition. This in turn yields to a descending arpeggio outlining a dominant seventh chord on D, which leads to G major, which in turn leads to C major and beyond, in a series of secondary dominant chords which hint at a variety of keys in passing. By this time, the horn call motive has been reduced to its middle notes, absent the three short notes leading into it and the final drop of a fifth. The volume then diminishes as we hear an alternation of chords from the strings and woodwinds, one that contains some surprising chromatic chords. These gentle chords are interrupted briefly by a fortissimo assertion of a variant of the horn call motive, and then the volume drops down again, and we experience a new group of chromatic chords. So it seems as if we're alternating between turbulent and mysterious passages. The final turbulent passage, quoting again the fate motive, enters in F minor, but soon afterwards we arrive at the recapitulation. It begins with very little preparation, but that doesn't mean it's not a dramatic event. Here is the second part of the development section leading into the recapitulation. The recapitulation of the first subject doesn't amount to a precise duplication of the original, nor would you expect it to at this point. For example, oboes and bassoons now provide a much more active countermelody to the repeated manipulations of the four-note motive. Also, when it comes to the cadence on the dominant chord before the fermata, the scoring is a bit different, and we're treated to a brief cadenza-like flourish from the first oboe. Does this wistful little interruption have some hidden programmatic meaning? Does that say something about fate? It's tempting to speculate, I suppose, but there's not really much to go on here. At any rate, from that point on to the final bars of the modulatory transition, which doesn't really modulate this time, since the second subject returns in C major rather than E flat major, things proceed largely as they did in the exposition, but the texture is somewhat fuller. We hear the same ascending sequence patterns combined with a crescendo and accented downbeats just as we heard before, with the only real changes occurring in the last few measures of the transition, where Beethoven this time avoids tipping the scales toward E-flat major. The horn call motive arrives in the same place, although this time in C major, of course, and the score indicates that it is to be played by the bassoons, but that's almost certainly because the horns employed in Beethoven's day could not have played the notes in the new key of C major. Modern performances tend to insert the horns here 
to make a bolder effect. The theme itself closely resembles the original version, although the orchestration is again a little different. The flutes jump in after just four bars, and the clarinet misses out on its solo presentation. But as the second and third bars in a variant version are then extended, hinting at a modulation that never really comes, then the clarinet, along with the flute, get an opportunity to trade off solo phrases with the strings. Here is the recapitulation to that point. My excerpt led us a little into the closing section, which is of course now also in C major. It follows into the codetta section, much as before, but then continues on into a new coda section, which takes us briefly into new tonal regions, starting once again with F minor, even as it continues to reference the fate motive. Codas are often described as second development sections in Beethoven's later works, and this is a good example, although not as lengthy as some. At first, the repeated references to the opening motive are thickly scored, the whole orchestra participating in the short, short, short long rhythms with the last note given a sforzando accent. But then the texture thins unexpectedly after we've arrived at an ambiguous chromatic chord, and the dynamic level falls to piano as horns first, then clarinets and bassoons present a variant of the motive, the last note slipping up a minor third. After a measure of silence, the orchestra returns at full force on an unexpected diminished seventh chord on F sharp, which seems to throw the tonality into further confusion, although in the end it will serve as the first step guiding us back to C minor. Now the horn call motive reappears, and the fate motive gradually gives way to another thematic idea, a flow of ascending eighth notes. These serve to introduce a thematic idea strongly reminiscent of the second subject, unfolding all in quarter notes, although it's not by any means an exact duplication. 
This quasi-second subject theme is heard in multiple octaves in lower strings and bassoons, and later clarinets and flutes, while the first and second violins continue their flow of eighth notes against it, now running in parallel motion to the new theme. But the flow of quarter notes is then interrupted with two measure fragments tossed back and forth between strings, woodwinds, horns, trumpets, and timpani. This near-frantic activity becomes even more so as the fate motive is reintroduced, fortissimo, in a new, dissonant version, back in C minor, much as in the opening measure of the movement, but now even more dramatic because of that added dissonance. We'll hear the coda up to that point. But Beethoven is not quite finished. Just as in the beginning of the movement, the bold proclamation of the fate theme is followed by a much quieter statement of the same motive, also reminiscent of the opening measures. But this time it's cut off suddenly and dramatically as the entire orchestra pounces on the fate motive three additional times before finishing off the movement with a series of emphatic quarter notes and a final cadence. But we are going to move on now to the second movement, in A-flat major, the so-called submedian key, a somewhat unusual choice for a slow movement, although Beethoven had also made use of it in the Eroica and Ninth Symphonies. It's in 3-8 time, marked andante con moto, and is usually described as a double theme and variations, meaning it contains variations on two separate themes sometimes subdividing the themes further into separate parts. The first theme, beginning piano and marked dolce, is a simple but stately melody played by violas and cellos with a demure bass line provided by the double basses. It begins in a familiar way, with an upbeat ascending triad, this time starting on the fifth of the tonic chord. It's highly integrated, dominated by dotted 16th, 32nd note rhythms. Harmonically, it's simple enough, but starting in the fourth measure, Beethoven introduces a pair of secondary dominant chords, which increase the sense of momentum a bit, although by measure eight, we find ourselves right back on the original tonic chord. Here are the first ten bars, including a repeated cadential tag at the end, for which the rest of the orchestra joins in. 
The next part of the theme begins with a repetition of the cadential tag played by woodwinds alone, but this time it's used as an introduction to a new idea, also featuring the woodwinds, which begins with a gentle syncopation and ends with a cadence on the subdominant. A variant of the same phrase in the strings, which exploits a brief crescendo surge, then returns us to the tonic, which is then confirmed by another repeated cadential tag. The next thematic idea contrasts considerably in several ways. It begins with another dotted note pickup figure and is again marked dolce, but it is in general much broader, moving more slowly in longer note values and thereby more majestic sounding. But this feeling of calm majesty is interrupted after four bars when a repeated diminished seventh chord is introduced, quietly, as the repeated dotted rhythms re-emerge. Why this diminished chord interruption to the overall sense of repose and majesty? To add a little tension to the proceedings, we haven't really experienced any to this point, to generate a few seconds of heightened expectancy, a what-will-happen-next moment, to provide a little oral space between a thematic idea and its transformation, to undermine the key just enough to prepare the ear for the striking modulation which lies directly ahead. It could be any or all of these things. We can't ask Beethoven, and it's unlikely that he'd give us much of an explanation if we could. On one occasion, when asked directly about a change he had made in one of his scores, he responded simply, It's better this way. And it's not as if Beethoven's music came flowing directly from his brain to the finished score. Far from it. We know from his sketches that he would frequently jettison what most listeners would think of as perfectly good ideas and replace them with completely new ideas. So it's clear that he labored mightily over many of his compositions, but that doesn't mean he would have been able to explain in any detail why some ideas were rejected and others accepted. So, without being able to explain exactly why this string of diminished chords exists at this point in the movement, let's see what's on the other side of them.
what's on the other side is obviously a very dramatic event, dramatic especially in harmonic and tonal terms, because what Beethoven does here is to transform that diminished seventh chord into another type of chromatic chord. It's one of those augmented sixth chords, this one a German sixth chord, a type I've mentioned once or twice before. And that chord transports us in the wink of an eye from A-flat major to C major. I'm not going to suggest that this is the sort of thing that only Beethoven could have done, because it isn't. But it's a breathtaking maneuver, which at this point in history would have been heard as very unusual. And it certainly transforms the melody we just heard which previously sounded relatively sedate and maybe just a bit old-fashioned, to one that is epic and, yes, even heroic, with those trumpets, horns, and timpani all blazing away fortissimo. But following this triumphal moment, we encounter another somewhat puzzling passage, pianissimo, based on the repetition of a different diminished seventh chord, and similar to the passage I played a few minutes ago. This one ends differently, with a descending bass line directing us through another series of rather mysterious chords, which delivers us down to an E-flat chord, and it's soon clear that its purpose is to return us to the key of A-flat major, and the first variation. Sir George Grove calls this a coda, since it provides a tail to the section presenting the main thematic ideas but it might just as well be thought of as a transition to the first variation. I'm only going to play a few of these wonderful variations. We'll hear the third, fourth, and fifth variation of the first part of the first theme, introduced by another transitional passage based on a descending chromatic bass line similar to the one I just described. It's a straightforward enough melodic variation, with first the cellos and violas, and later first violins, all very softly, filling in the melodic gaps in the original theme with 32nd notes. But particularly brilliant here, although rather subtle, is the staccato accompaniment in the woodwinds. For the fourth variation, the theme moves to cellos and basses, the texture thickens dramatically, and we come to a rousing forte conclusion.
After this, the music quiets again, and we hear some delicate references to the second theme, more emphatic references to the first theme, a free minor key development of the first part of the first theme, and what appears to be a free recapitulation of both parts of that theme. At any rate, it all blends into the final, very powerful coda. So, formally speaking, the movement is an elusive one, not functioning quite as a typical double variation, although certainly exhibiting some characteristics associated with that form. But we are going to turn now to the third movement, a remarkable scherzo, although not labeled as such. In 3-4 time and back to C minor, it begins with one of those quick minor key melodies in triple meter played softly, which often have a mysterious aura about them. Heard first in the cellos and double basses, the theme is again based on an ascending tonic triad, starting on the fifth scale degree and moving up almost two octaves before heading back down, first by step and then by a distinctive descending minor sixth, which will later become an important motivic element, and ending up on the fifth scale degree. This four-bar phrase is immediately answered by a new four-bar phrase in the upper strings that starts on the fifth scale degree. It's similar in some respects, but mixing in stepwise movement along with the triadic leaps. It comes to a stop on a dominant chord held with a fermata. Then the first four bars are restated, this time with a three-measure extension moving down the scale one featuring an abrupt sforzando accent as a harbinger of things to come. Then the responding phrase is repeated again, still pianissimo, but bolstered by the woodwinds, all of it ending once again on the dominant chord. It's an effective, highly atmospheric opening, but what comes next is more striking. It is, of course, the rhythm of the short, 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 long fate motive, hammered into our ears fortissimo by the horns as the bass line moves up by step against it. The melodic intervals are obviously different here. A single note, the fifth scale degree, is repeated 11 times before finally moving up a step and then quickly descending to more. The result is clearly powerful and there's a lot of repetition, but the effect isn't really static because of the movement of the bassline and the modulations that occur in transit. We move quickly through E flat minor and G flat major, eventually passing to B flat minor, where, as you probably noticed, the fate motive rhythm is replaced by a new motive, 
one based on repeated and heavily accented half-step motion. And, as you also heard, after pausing on the dominant in B-flat minor, we hear a return of the opening motive of the movement in that key, pianissimo as before. After we again hear a fermata on the dominant, the theme is repeated. The answering phrase is different this time. It makes an undulating descent over the course of an octave and a half and relies heavily on the descending minor sixth interval I mentioned earlier. The last two bars of that answering phrase are then used as a transition, going from pianissimo to forte over the next ten measures. At that point, the fate mode of rhythm returns, again boldly, again in C minor, but modulating away from that key only briefly this time, before returning to C minor at the end. This gives way to a return of the first theme, again in C minor, but the theme proceeds a little differently this time. The responding phrase played by the woodwinds is heard three times, each time with a strong countermelody supplied by the cellos and bassoons, but each time varied slightly and with rather quiet references to the fate theme, even from the timpani bubbling beneath the surface. Then, as the melody of the responding phrase is shifted down to the cellos, the first violins come up with a jaunty new melodic idea, based rhythmically on four-eighths followed by a quarter note, with a distinctive articulation pattern. We've heard so much of the original theme, and then the fate theme, that it's almost a surprise to hear something brand new. But this new thematic idea, and the varied extension it's provided, plays an important role as we come to the end of the first part of the scherzo. It does not, however, have the last word, which is supplied by a last, very robust nod to the fate motive, although one that quickly fades to piano. The trio, or B section, comes as something of a surprise. The first theme in the first section of the movement projected a sense of mystery. The second theme summed up the dark, perhaps even ominous tone of the original fate movement. But the trio? It's based initially on a fugue. And of course, there's a natural tendency to think of a fugue as a rather weighty affair. And yet this one seems anything but weighty. Thank you. 
We're in C major now with the double basses and cellos starting us off with this very brisk six-measure theme, one that manages to sound quite good-natured despite the fact that it's a handful for cellists and especially double bass players. It behaves in a perfectly proper fugal manner, the violas and bassoons following at the fifth, the second violins up an octave, and the first up two octaves, and it finishes off in a particularly exuberant manner with an ascending four-note motive that lands on a dominant chord. After a repeat of the 20-measure section, we seem to start up again, but for the first few measures, we're really just prolonging the dominant seventh chord with repeated variants of the first two bars of the subject. But eventually, violas and bassoons enter with the subject again on tonic. But soon the clarinets and violas add a clever new offbeat countermelody, to which oboes and horns soon contribute, while trumpets and timpani ground it all with solid downbeats. Pretty soon, it's the melody from the third and fourth bars of the theme that has seized control in the woodwinds, while strings continue the throbbing eighth notes of the first two measures of the theme, but now in new configurations. We end this section, like the first, with a repeat of a vigorous ascending four-note motive. And then the section begins to start all over again, but unexpectedly we diminuendo down to piano. The dynamic level remains low as overlapping versions of the subject enter, with the flutes having the final say. As the section quiets further, pizzicati from the low strings finish off the transition back to the A section or original scherzo melody. But we're going to skip over that transition and pick it up at the return of the original melody. It begins quietly and mysteriously again, although the second phrase, given over this time to the clarinets and bassoons, is a little different. As we continue, other aspects of the orchestration are somewhat different as well. But what is most different is when the short, 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 long fate motive arrives, the effect is nothing like it was the first time when the horns announced it so boldly. In fact, now it, it is the opposite of bold. We hear the motive first in the clarinets, pianissimo, the longer fourth note of the motive, replaced now by a quarter note followed by two beats of rest. The motive then moves down to the first violins, pianissimo and pizzicato. It then goes back up to the oboes, again pianissimo, and on we go, the whole affair sounding much more tongue-in-cheek than menacing. The original theme eventually returns in cellos and oboes, softly of course, and even it sounds more playful at this point. Thank you. 
Eventually, the two themes are paired up and both are developed, still quietly and even coquettishly, eventually in a steady flow of undulating pizzicato quarter notes, heard as a somewhat new melodic idea, although based on the last two bars of the original theme. Eventually, even the timpani get into the act, pianissimo, of course, while the strings sustain an A-flat major chord, a somewhat surprising tonal shift given all the C minor we've been hearing. These quarter notes gradually move higher and higher up the scale in the first violins, finally beginning to crescendo, and in the end, throb away on F, the seventh of a dominant seventh chord in the key of C minor. And before we fully realize it, we find ourselves into the finale. It's in C major, allegro, and fortissimo. Earlier, I made reference to the fact that the Fifth Symphony lacks the military trappings of the Eroica Symphony. Perhaps I should have said that it lacks the direct military associations of that symphony, since there is no clear link here to a conquering general. But the use of timpani in the third movement, and now the heroic, march-like qualities associated with the beginning of the finale, these things certainly seem to suggest some sort of conquest on their own terms. Here again is the first theme of the finale, the entire first statement of 22 bars. It begins very boldly in 4-4 time with an ascending tonic triad. It then immediately descends by step, returning to the tonic note. Having quickly established a triumphal tone, it then, in measure 3, introduces dotted 8th 16th note figures alternating with longer notes to give it even more of a military aspect as we begin to ascend up the scale. As we continue to ascend, staccato eighth notes complete the military mixture as the timpani thunders away in faster rhythmic patterns. So far we've heard nothing but tonic and dominant chords, and now we begin to dwell on the dominant chord as we hear a new melodic tag that repeats four times as the timpani continues to pound away on the dominant note.
Right at the end of my excerpt, you heard a little linking bridge section, based in this case on descending eighth note patterns, combining slurs, staccatos, and accents in a new way, although the passage does resemble, to some extent, an inversion of one heard earlier in measures 5 through 7. What it's linking to seems like a new theme, although one which is still broadly majestic and military-sounding and altogether compatible with the first theme in terms of style. It also begins with an ascending tonic triad, although configured differently this time, and unfolds slowly against a stream of staccato eighth notes in low strings and bassoons. But it's not the official second subject of the movement, assuming a sonata form, because it's still in the original tonic key of C major. But ten bars into this new thematic idea, it becomes clear that we're actually in the modulatory transition and heading toward G major. We begin to recognize that fact as Beethoven begins to introduce a series of dominant chords in the new key, and as he actually begins to develop the transitional theme we were just introduced to by repeating a variant of the first two bars of that theme in shorter note values. Here is the transitional section beginning with the four measure link that introduces it. Now, as for the second subject itself, which you'll hear in a minute, it's quite dynamic and it resembles in its rhythmic identity the short, 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 long pattern of the fate motive, heard first in the first violins. I'm not suggesting it's identical. Here, the three short notes are heard in a triplet configuration and they lead to a staccato quarter note. Still, it's likely that the resemblance between the two ideas is more than a coincidence. After working its way up to the new tonic note by way of the new triplet-based figure, the melody immediately begins to descend in a similar manner, all in a span of four measures. Set against this fast-moving theme in the upper strings is a much slower-moving, ascending counter-melody, heard first in the cellos, and alternating with the cellos doubling of the triplet motive. It's barely noticeable at this point, but a more fully developed version of this ascending motive will play an important role in the coda section. After four bars, the woodwinds take up the first two bars of the triplet bass theme against a driving descending counter melody in the second violins and violas. But soon the first violins are in control again, and they extend the theme sequentially for a few measures, before yielding to a closing section, which crescendos to forte amidst a series of flashing scale lines in the strings.
my excerpt cut off on a dominant seventh chord in G major that is obviously in need of a resolution, and it resolves here to a new theme, which we'll call a codetta, heard first in violas, bassoons, and clarinets. The initial thematic idea is only two measures long, and it's actually not as rhythmically active as the second subject, beginning as it does with a dotted half note followed by a series of quarter notes. It's then restated up a fourth, but given a two-measure lyrical tag to return it to the tonic. And it's initially played quite softly, although some forte piano accents and recurring sixteenth note flourishes from the first violins help to keep the energy level reasonably high. The theme is moved around a bit and bolstered eventually by the entire orchestra, including horns, trumpets, and even trombones, a rarity indeed for a symphony at this point, as it gradually crescendos into a final series of chords that close off the exposition. It's not surprising that Beethoven would choose to focus in the development section on motives from the second subject, notably the ascending and descending triplet patterns. As attractive as the noble and rather grandiose first subject is, it is less pliable and less easily broken into independent motives. But we're only five measures into the development section and in the key of A major when the second subject makes its entrance and the original ascending four-note motive is soon broken off and treated separately, skipping from one instrument to another as we move through various keys, including F major, B flat minor, and A flat major. The second subject triplet motive is soon joined by a slower-moving ascending three-note motive, heard first in the cellos, but soon spreading throughout the texture and coming to dominate as the volume increases and the motive is doubled in the trombones. Here's the first part of the development section.
as the broadly ascending three-note motive increases in power, even as the triplet motives continue to scamper through the texture, we begin to approach the more grandiose tone associated with the opening measures of the movement, especially the second four bars of the first subject, without actually quoting any detail of those four bars. But a triumphal, all-conquering development section of this sort is hardly surprising, given the nature of the movement as a whole. But what is surprising is what interrupts this heaven-storming development section after an extended transition passage. It's the scherzo theme, after a switch to 3-4 time, a theme which was itself an adaptation of the short-short-short-long fate motive. It's not a direct quote from the scherzo movement, more of a creative reinterpretation of that theme. But quite aside from the fact that bringing back a theme of this sort from an earlier movement is all but unprecedented, it also creates the perfect buffer zone between the bluster of the development section and the heroic restatement of the first subject in the recapitulation. After a while, the quoted melody and accompaniment disappear, and we're left only with a short, 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 long rhythm, while flutes and oboes unfold an extended four-note motive that maneuvers within the upper notes of a dominant seventh chord in C major, our original tonic. This prolongation of the dominant seventh chord goes on for over 30 measures, and then, after a crescendo, we are delivered into the recapitulation. The recapitulation is, given the novelties associated with this symphony, surprisingly normal. But the coda is a particularly formidable one, acting as a second development section, which is admittedly not unusual at this point. It begins by again referencing the second subject over a dominant pedal. But it also makes an increasingly significant use of that slower-moving ascending countermelody I referred to in connection with the second subject. That countermelody now pops up in the first violins, but also in horns, trumpets, and trombones, as well as woodwinds, actually beginning to dominate the texture after a while, although triplet figures derived from the second subject also continue to be present. Thank you. 
One of the other key features of this coda is the surprisingly elaborate development of the modulatory transition theme, just when we would appear to be heading toward a final cadence. This is not one of those themes that would seem to be conducive to development, but Beethoven demonstrates how effectively it can be. So, in this coda, we focused on the theme from the modulatory transition and the second theme, and a countermelody from the second theme we might not even have noticed the first time around. And now, in the final measures, after a shift to cut time and a tempo marking switch to presto, Beethoven employs the codetta theme to take us to a lengthy preparation for the final cadence one that includes a last backward glance at the first subject, and finally, the cadence itself. It is impossible to interpret that conclusion as anything but triumphant. So, is Beethoven making a statement with his fifth symphony, a statement about overcoming fate? Of course, major key conclusions of symphonies that begin in a minor key, especially the tragic key of C minor, are necessarily optimistic in nature. So, I suppose the answer would have to be yes although it's not at all certain that Beethoven was envisioning this in personal terms. As Swafford has pointed out, Beethoven was not a romantic, and he was not mainly concerned with expressing himself. And even if there were echoes of his own life, the goal was not autobiography, but a larger human statement. And in the long run, the fate backstory is not the most important feature of this symphony, certainly not in historical terms. The characteristics for which this symphony was most noted and most highly influential later in the 19th century 
are its motivic economy, that organic sense of unity it displays, especially in the first movement, and its cyclicism, with the recurrence of the scherzo theme in the finale movement being the master stroke. Of course, the historical significance of a composition is a very important consideration, but it does not necessarily relate directly to the popularity of a work. And Beethoven's Fifth Symphony turned out to be a very popular work, not overnight exactly, but in a relatively short time. Naturally, there were some detractors, including other composers, some who were unimpressed by the fate motive, considering it less than suitable material for a proper first subject in a symphony, and some who considered the finale chaotic and overly noisy. But, on the whole, classical music audiences have fully embraced the work for its dynamic qualities and exuberance, and it's unlikely that that will change anytime soon. For our next episode, we'll look at two very different works, the unique choral fantasy, Opus 80, and the third cello sonata in A major, Opus 69. 